afternoon. You're listening to 90.7 FM KALX. I'm Franklin, and this is Berkeley Crocs. That's right. It's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. I'm Charles Lee. Coming up on today's show, we'll be discussing current developments in the world of science. In addition, we'll be joined by Robert Ernst and Sarah Oberman, who are leading performers in the new play, Proof. Also, we'll find out what causes red tides. So stay tuned for all this, plus the world-famous question of the week coming right up here on Berkeley Grocks. Welcome back to Franklin Crocs. I'm Franklin. And I guess that makes me Charles Lee. How are you doing, Frank? Not too bad. Actually, really good. It's, it's a beautiful day today. Oh, you can't beat this kind of weather. I mean, uh, <laughs> that's what the Bay Area living's all about, it turns out. Heaven. All thanks to the miracles of science, I think, and Mm-mm. and those weather forecasters. Those weather forecasters. Because they, they are controlling the weather, aren't they? Uh, I thought they were, but interestingly, there is a story about the weather. Is or there? what could affect the weather. Ooh, okay. So, uh, do you know what kind of economy we're running on right now? Uh, I believe it is a bear economy. Bear? Uh, the answer is oil. Oil economy, okay. Yes, but uh, some people think we could go to the hydrogen economy in about 20 or 30 oh, years. Oh, that's right, that's right. The hydrogen is an alternative fuel source. They've mm-hmm. been saying that for years, in fact. Yes, I guess once you burn up, you all get water, right? Right. But uh, a study just came out from Caltech suggests that there may be some dangers with that. Okay. And the problem is, uh, you know, we can probably figure out a way to make the hydrogen and transport it to your cars safely. But the problem is we'll probably lose between 10 and 20 percent on the way in the transport, you know, either to leaked lines or... Uh, or, you know, bad seals here and there. I see. So it's uh, it, it has to do actually with just sort of making it efficient. Is that the idea? Right. I mean, I, I presume even in the oil industry, we probably lose some here and there. Right. But they, they calculate that this could amount to between 60 and 120 tri- trillion grams of extra hydrogen into the into the air, which is four to eight times what's normally in the air right now. I see. And what would be the problems with that much extra hydrogen in the air then? It turns out, um, in these concentrations, it may actually uh, act like CFCs, those chlorofluorocarbons. It could actually destroy ozone. Oh, I see. It'd become like a radical and... Right. Of course, you know, the product is you'll get water, but at the same time, you're still, uh, you're making the ozone a little bit weaker. Right, right. Well, that's uh, certainly a, a bit of a problem there. So yes. It has, so they're saying, okay, we have to make these devices at least very efficient if yeah. they're going to spew out water. Yeah, or, you know, if not, then find some alternative forms. And uh, they're trying to carry out some further studies to see if this is possible or not. No one really knows, but uh, based on this, they probably want to suggest, you know, uh, where we should invest our high tech for the next 20 years. I see, I see. What I'm worried about is all these cars spewing out steam, steam? and we're just going to have, like, uh, rainy days every day. So that that's my big worry. What about all the ethanol that's going to the air? You know, those ethyl- I, I have no problem with being drunk every day. <laughs> Rainy days, though, that's a problem. So uh, this was carried out by a couple of researchers, John Eiler, Yuk Yang, who are professors, uh, uh, Ren Li Xia, a scientist, and Mark Allen from JPL. And you can find us in the last week's edition of Science.
Well, I guess if, if burning down uh, hydrogen and uh, oxygen is not uh, your cup of tea, then how about uh, bombarding gold? Bombarding gold? Yes, indeed. That sounds like fun. It is fun because it, it can create, create one of your uh, favorite states of matter. What's your favorite state of matter? Plasma, dude. Plasma. plasma. you got to love the plasma. Well, this bombarding gold will create a very special kind of plasma, the quark-gluon plasma. Whoa, that's hot, huh? It's amazingly hot. In fact, it hasn't been seen since, like, the early, early beginnings of the universe, like a few nanoseconds since the creation of the universe. But if we do this, don't we accidentally create, like, mini black holes that eventually swallow us up completely? One can only hope, but in fact, <laughs> the first part is actually proving whether or not we've actually created these sorts of things. Oh, you mean we have to do that? <laughs> it would seem. Before, well, you know, nature doesn't actually create universes unless it's been proved that they will. Yeah. Uh, so <laughs> it turns out that a, a lot of researchers have actually been trying to form these quark-gluon plasmas to study them and actually try and understand a little bit about the early beginnings of the universe. And... Uh, uh, these are scientists that have been working at Brookhaven National Laboratory working on this thing called the Relativistic Heavy Ion Collider. Heavy, dude. It is heavy, dude. And what it does is it takes these gold nuclei and smashes them into it, each other at about 99% the speed of light. Uh-huh. And as a result, then, it creates a whole bunch of different particles, and it frees the uh, quarks that are held in the nucleus of an atom. Hmm. So each, you know, the nucleus is held of protons, neutrons, right. and that's composed of quarks right. held together by gluons. Well, if you smash them together fast enough, you can strip all those guys apart and create this quark-gluon plasma. Researchers now have probably the most convincing evidence that they've actually created the uh, quark-gluon plasma. Mm -hmm. They smash these guys into each other, the gold particles into each other, and they saw what was known as a jet quenching which means that uh, these little particles that would come off would automatically be quenched as if they were interacting with this quark-gluon plasma. Right. Uh, but it's not, it's not definitive evidence. So what they did next was they took gold particles and smashed them into hydrogen particles. And you shouldn't see these quark-gluon plasmas form and thus no jet quenching. And that's actually what they saw. So it's further evidence that there's actually this quark-gluon plasma forming. So do they hope to prove uh, or uh, suggest theories for the uh, unification like, of the forces from these experiments? I, I would imagine that's probably one of other things that they're they're looking at in these experiments uh who knows but uh, those physicists they just like smashing things <laughs> smashing good mm, mm, mm. they're like the hulk <laughs> which is coming out by the way indeed and uh hopefully he can smash the uh gold particles into quark and gluons mm -hmm. uh but if people are look interested in looking at this you can check it out on the science now website Okay, so there's now two uh, pieces of holistic news. Holistic news? Yeah, it's like, almost science. I like mine particulate and uh, grainy. Particulate and grainy. Yeah. How but about holistic, chewy? Holistic. Chewy's good. Yeah, so uh, actually, if, if you have SARS, one thing that you might want to chew on is uh, licorice sticks. I, well, I don't have SARS, but I do like chewing on licorice sticks, so what's good about licorice sticks? I think some researchers have found out that there's an active compound in there that seems to slow down the SARS virus. Oh, is that right? And the Chinese uh, people are recommending that if you might have it, to chew on these sticks, so slow it down. So they, do they know what this compound is yet? or have they? I think they have some ideas, but they're still uh, doing some initial tests right now. Wow, and how do they find this out? Probably like from Chinese herbal medicine, <laughs> random stuff. At least it's not like the, the goat testicle, you know, because <laughs> that would not be you know, I guess if you had the SARS, you'd go and have, you know, go testicle, but licorice is probably better. Mm, 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 mm. But here's the real, uh, somewhat scientific news. Okay. Uh, so I thought that was it. No, no, no. This is the real one. The, uh, this is a study carried out 
by the College of Dentistry mm -hmm. in Illinois, and what they showed was that tea can kill the bacteria that cause bad breath. Tea can cause uh, kill, okay. Kill. And it probably because of all the uh, antiseptic the polyphenols. polyphenols in those. S same stuff as in the wine. Right. So uh, what they did was they had three types of bacteria, and they exposed it to uh, tea with uh, concentrations between 16 to 250 micrograms. Mm -hmm. per mil of, uh, of the T, T polyphenols and see what would happen. And what, what they found was it would inhibit the growth of these bacteria. Ah, intriguing. These bacteria are the ones that thrive in the back of your tongue, right. under your gums, basically anaerobic. Right. Yeah, I guess anyone has a real problem with bad breath, just uh, drink more tea. <laughs> uh, jasmine or oolong? Uh, they're both pretty good. It, okay. They both have different active compounds. Okay. So uh, So if, if one doesn't get them, uh, use the other. Yeah. How, so about, how about Lipton? Lipton, I believe it's black tea, right? All right, it's black tea. Yeah. Yes, and uh, this was uh, reported in the uh, uh, latest meeting of the American Society for Microbiology. Okay, and uh, one final little story. So it turns out, as you said, tea can kill uh, the germs that cause bad breath. Mm-hmm. Well, meteorites can kill the organisms that inhabit the Earth. Wow. That, that's like poetry. Isn't it, though? Berkeley Grox. Isn't it amazing? We, we link all aspects of science across borders. It's amazing how we do that. <laughs> With visions of destruction, too. It's, it's, it's all about death in many ways, in fact. So uh, it turns out that the long health theories about um, the extinction of at least the dinosaurs mm -hmm. has been proved that uh, it's pretty much no, no doubt that a 15-kilometer-wide asteroid uh, probably caused the extinction of the dinosaurs around 65 million years ago. So uh, is that the uh, common health theory? Or is that the it's it's sort of commonly held. It's a, it's a lot of evidence. They've sort of discovered what looks like it's the uh, what looks like the impact crater at the Yucatan Peninsula. All hmm. this kind of stuff. But uh, a lot of evidence now is growing that uh, meteorite impacts are probably common in terms of causing other extinctions that have faced the Earth over the past several millennia. Uh -huh. And so recently, a group of uh, researchers at uh, Louisiana State University, led by Brooks Elwood, uh, have discovered another possible uh, major impact that could have created an extinction in the marine... In the marine world. Marine world, about... Uh, uh, around the same time, in fact. Was that an infusion of tea into the oceans? What's that? <laughs> no tea, unfortunately, but in oh. fact, uh, the, 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 the asteroid, in fact, held a lot of nickel, chromium, cobalt, arsenic, and vanadium. It must be the arsenic. I, it must be the arsenic, I guess. <laughs> so this is uh, an impact about 380 million years ago. It's known as the Kakak Otomari event. And so it's a it's a big piece of evidence that uh, possibly this was the event that caused uh, a distinction of a lot of marine life at that time. Interesting. Well, the other theory I've heard was, you know, back when the Earth was younger, it had lots and lots of volcanoes, so like sort of like Krakatoa, but on a much bigger scale. Right. And it spewed so much dust into the atmosphere that uh, it would kill life from, you know, blocking out the sun and right, right. all these bad chemicals. It's, it's certainly possible, and uh, people are still saying, well, it's... It, this is certainly evidence that uh, another meteorite caused some sort of extinction, but it's not a smoking gun. So, <laughs> uh, Drink some tea and uh, ponder that the next time you're interested. Uh, this is on uh, the recent issue of Science, uh, Volume 13. Wow, our third story from Science. Sorry, June 13th, yeah. <laughs> and that's all for a look at current developments in a world of science this week. You're listening to Berkeley Grocks here on 90.7 FM. Coming up, we'll be talking to Susan Overman and Robert Ernst actors for the play Proof. So stay tuned.
welcome back to Berkeley Grox. Well, on this week's interview, we're going to find out a little bit more on the human side of being a mathematician. Uh, joining us right now is Robert Ernst, one of the lead actors of the play Proof, which will be playing in Mountain View by TheaterWorks. So first of all, could you give us a little background uh, on the story? A, uh, a very brilliant mathematician who made uh, many uh, discoveries that revolutionized the field of mathematics when he was 21 or 22, uh, a fellow named Robert. The play takes place in Chicago, and he was a teacher at the, and a professor at the University of Chicago. Uh, he made all these discoveries in his youth. He also had uh, mental instability problems, probably, although it's not specifically defined in the play, probably manic depression or schizophrenia, probably schizophrenia most likely. And he actually came to that condition, and um, he has two daughters, one who helps from a distance, and that's Claire and Catherine, who's actually the lead in the play, stays home for Gozer education to take care of her father, but receives a lot of training from him from just being around the house. And he dies, and <clears throat> she's taking care of his things, and he's been filled 103 notebooks. And they make a discovery that is uh, pretty fantastic in terms of another one of these revolutionary theoretical math proof discoveries, and uh, the ownership of whose proof it is becomes a question in the play. Then there's also a, he has a, a, a student that was an assistant uh, of his who comes to go through his things, and his name is Hal, and Hal and Catherine uh, begin a professional and perhaps uh, personal relationship. And with us right now is Sarah Overman, who plays Catherine, the daughter. Uh, Sarah, welcome to Berkeley Rocks today. Thank you. Uh, well, we've heard from the father. Uh, perhaps we can get a perspective from uh, from the daughter's side. Uh, Sarah? Well, it's funny because when I hear other people talk about what their role is, people often say that she is the daughter of a mathematician, but in fact, she herself is a mathematician in her own right. Mm -hmm. And in a way, that's what the story is about, um, is... Uh, how capable is this young woman of actually writing this uh, incredible proof which appears in the play? Um, the story centers really around a period of time in this young woman's life where she had lost her father to mental illness and then to his death. And um, she's sort of uh, left with some questions about her own sanity and... Um, there is this mysterious proof in the house, and there is a question of whether or not she is cap she's, she has written it and whether or not she is capable of having written it. Mm -hmm. So um, that's, I think, the major question of the play. I'm just curious, um, was the play based on any real stories? Um, I think it's, uh, you know, that it, it is a composite. They've, they've talked about, like, uh, Nash in A Beautiful Mind. I think to, uh, in his research, a lot of drawing, uh, pulled on a lot of information from there. Uh, as we, uh, Andrew Wiles, some of the, 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 his recent mathematical proof discovery. Andrew Wiles was, he was the guy that proved Fermat's last theorem recently, right? Right. Mm hmm. So those, those are a couple, uh, characters that we've mentioned. Uh, the dramaturg on the project, uh, Jessica has, uh, certainly, uh, we have a huge notebook that she's filled full of sort of facts and figures, and we've met with a, uh, couple of, uh, math people that, uh, connected with, well, they're not really connected with Stanford anymore, they're connected with uh, um, a math institute, a 
research institute on their own, mm-hmm. and we've met with them and discussed issues. And uh, the uh, women in the play went to a luncheon of women mathematicians down at Stanford yesterday, which was very interesting. And so, you know, there's been uh, there's definitely uh, been a lot of background research done on it. But uh, so the, those are a couple composites, I think. Uh, you know, like uh, Nash's uh, mental problems there, and. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then Wiles' discovery, a couple things that come to mind. And I understand there's a love story in the play. Um, could you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. Um, in the play, there is a postdoc student of her father's that has come through the house a couple times and is there after the father's death uh, to look through some of his notebooks, some of the documents in his um, office. They have a kind of uh, connection that happens in a really delicate time because the father has just passed away and mm-hmm. his presence is a huge um, I guess marker in the play uh, he kind of represents the rest of the world I guess and wondering or uh, wondering whether or not Catherine is capable of having written this proof because she does uh, because of their intimacy decide to share with him the fact that she has written it and he does not believe upon upon first seeing it, that she is capable of writing it. So um, they do end up uh, reconciling that, Hmm. but the love story is really mixed in with some um, intellectual and professional questions, and um, those are the hurdles that they have to get over, and at the end of the play, you you know, you don't know whether or not they're going to be able to get past those things, but um, they definitely have an intellectual connection, and... um, I think there's a, the possibility that um, they're really made for each other, mm-hmm. but the, the play doesn't necessarily answer that question. Um, I'm just curious here, have you played a, a role in a mathematician or, or a scientist before? Or? No, I have not. And yeah. I am definitely not a mathematician myself. Uh-huh. So it's, it's an interesting challenge. Um, I, I think especially since, you know, we don't know what happens in other people's brains. And we assume, as people, that everyone's walking around sort of a similar experience as us. But, you know, I really am really coming to terms with the fact that uh, I'm having to really imagine a whole other way of my brain functioning uh, in order to play this part. And it's been very fascinating. I'm, I'm really, it's really wonderful that this world of mathematics has been opened up to me because it's something that I never would have explored on my own. I am... um, deathly afraid of math myself so uh, and in the process the rehearsal process we have met various mathematicians uh, I went on a, a luncheon this past week with um, some folks at uh, Stanford University who do a lunch a luncheon for women in mathematics and that was a really really fascinating and, and wonderful opportunity to meet these women um, and to see that they sort of defy stereotype, and um, there, there's all types. It's not, you know, there's not just one type of, of mathematician or and one type of woman mathematician. They're just all human as everyone else. Yeah, right. Everyone's, everyone's human, right. It's interesting, though, because, you know, we got to ask some really fun questions, and I, I did ask these women how they felt about being in the rest of the world, you know, how they function socially in society. And, and, you know, they did kind of admit that once you get into the higher level mathematics, 
you know, there's, there's a huge portion of society that just doesn't get you and that, you know, socially you want to be with people who understand where you're coming from and that they generally, they hang out with mathematicians. So, you know, it's a really a whole subset of society that I I never even knew existed. But they were fascinating, wonderful women and just so incredibly smart. I was just really uh, blown away and pleased to have gotten the chance to meet them. And you, Mr. Overman, have you played a uh, scientist or mathematician before? Before this, I did a play called Calculus. Oh, Calculus. Okay. Which was uh, written by Dr. Carl Jurassi, who's also right, right. Professor Emeritus down at Stanford. Right. He's, uh, he's famous for uh, the other play, Oxygen, right? Right. Mm-hmm. That's right. That's right. And, and a uh, similar question, which was, uh, in, in that play, it was a question of uh, who came up with uh, the, idea. the concept of calculus uh, first. And has your perception of scientists changed at all? Well, I suppose, you know, you have, I mean, along with the, you know, there's always these stereotypes to break through, and I, I don't, I, I, I didn't really consciously have too many stereo, stereotypes about, uh, you know, there's a lot of references in the play to mm-hmm. math geeks and math nerds and stuff where they're self-referential, where it's mathematicians referring to themselves, uh, using those names with a little bit of, no little irony. But, you know, it's uh, in, in speaking with actually the, the math people themselves in the one meeting we had with them, it was really, it's really about human qualities of passion and uh, a love for the field that you're involved with, you know, for the learning, uh, the mystery. It's really, uh, I think we drew a lot of parallels between their struggles and their uh, frustrations and their elations uh, to the theater world, you know. Mm-hmm. It's really all, of, it seems to me, about... Uh, human conditions in the final analysis. I mean, they were very passionate about their work, uh, as we all are in the theater. I think very uh, very curious, uh, very excited about certain discoveries. Uh, I guess that would be the thing that would just be reaffirmed to me, which is that, uh, you know, it's, it's really about curiosity and all, all sort of life-affirming kind of things. Uh, you know, the curiosity, the obsession, uh, the highs and lows of uh, life, I guess. Well, I guess we're running a little bit out of time today. Um, are there any last words you'd like to add? It's a great play. It's so well-written. Uh, I, I can't say that any one part is better than the other because it's so well-written. It, it really stands as a whole piece. Mm-hmm. Um it just all comes together so well. Um, it, it references itself. Uh, mm-hmm. It references back to other scenes. It deals with time in a really nonlinear way. So, um, you know, you're going along, you hear about stuff that is, has happened, and then you suddenly go back in time and you see it from different, a different perspective. It's just really, really beautifully woven like a piece of, you know, thick fabric. It's, it's you know, it's a, really a masterpiece, I think. Well, Ms. Overman, Mr. Ernst, thanks for joining us on Berkeley Grox today, and we certainly look forward to seeing you on stage. Thank you very much. Yeah. And we were just talking to Susan Overman and Robert Ernst, the lead actors for Proof, a play about mathematicians. Proof is produced by TheaterWorks and will be performing at the Mountain View Center for Performing Arts starting June 21st and runs through July 13th. Previews begin tonight on the 18th. You're listening to Berkeley Rocks only here on 90.7 FM. Coming up, we'll find out how red tides are formed. So stay tuned.
All right, and welcome back to Berkeley Grox. And now here's the Tokyo Kid with the answer to last week's question of the week. Ah, uh, thank you, Chucky. And the question was, what causes a red tide and what is it? Well, a red tide is caused by uh, algae and plankton blooming in the ocean uh, due to uh, unforeseen uh, weather conditions. And uh, when the these algae bloom, they, uh, they produce toxins which the fish eat. And if people eat the fish, they also get the toxin and they uh, get sick. Maybe they die. But uh, the uh, red tide may not necessarily be red, but you may be seeing red. Ah, that's very interesting, uh, Tokyo Kid. Hey, it's the crazy Scotsman with this week's question of the week. Hey, you've seen them around, they're going around and around and around, spewing the radio waves. Hey, they're in the sky, they're queezers. Hey, but what are they and what are they doing? Hell, if you know the answer, just think you know the answer, email us at grooks at hotmail.com. You're not going to win anything, but you just might find a little bit more stars in your life. And that's all for this week's edition of Berkeley Grocks. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here at Berkeley Grocks, email us at grocks at hotmail.com. For Berkeley Grocks, I'm Frank Wilson. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.grocks.net. Have a great afternoon and stay tuned for more music with your host, Mr. Pixel.